been through pastor's class. We actually talked about the Reformation. Uh, it's an important part of church history for many, many reasons. Uh, and as I said before, we're about to hit the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and if we're familiar with the history of it at all, we understand that it was really sparked by an act on the part of Martin Luther, professor at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, who on October the 31st, 1517, tacked or nailed 99 theses to the door of Castle Church on the campus of the university, which was not an unusual thing for people to do. It's how they, they prompted other people to debate with them. Anyone, any of the professors, any of the students that had any ideas that they wanted to debate on, they would do the same thing. So the tacking of the theses is not an unusual thing. What was very unusual was what they had to say. A challenge to the church in many aspects. If you know anything about the Reformation, we can say in a sense it was sparked or started by Martin Luther, but it it spread very rapidly through most of Europe, uh, through a number of different people that we would recognize as being reformers, uh, John Calvin, Zwingli, uh, uh, John Knox in Scotland eventually, uh, lots of the Puritans in England a hundred years later. But we understand that it emphasized five things, those things that we call the solas, which is basically uh, just Latin for alone. And those five things are scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And we're going to be dissecting those over the next three weeks today. We're going to start out with sola scriptura, scripture only. Basically, it was returning back to the church, the the idea that God speaks to his people through his written words. And therefore, everything that the, the church believes and practices needs to be rooted deeply in the scriptures themselves. We're going to be looking this morning at a a particular couple of verses in Ephesians. I mean, in 2 Timothy. What am I talking about? 2 Timothy chapter 4. Or chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. When we read these words, all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good thing. All scripture. Well, we understand that very often the term all in English and the, all in the, in the term pause in Greek, which means the same thing, is sometimes meant literally, and other times it's not meant to be taken literally. For instance, there are examples of, in, in Scripture where the Scriptures tell us that, that, that all of Judea was going out 
to be baptized by John the Baptist. And you and I don't have in our, our mind the picture that absolutely every person in Judea went out to be baptized by John the Baptist. And we have every reason from Scripture to believe that's not what the situation actually was. But I want you to understand something here. This is a place where, where all needs to be taken absolutely literally. No exception to it. And what it's talking about is all of Scripture, all of the whole counsel of God. Now, we understand that when Paul was writing this, he was writing it in regard to those 39 books of the Old Testament. And then the New Testament was then being written by Paul and by the rest of the apostles or other people who were endorsed by one or more of the apostles. We know that the New Testament is every much as a part of the Word of God as the Old Testament is. For many reasons, one of those is in Second Peter. Peter actually describes the writings of the Apostle Paul as being like the rest of Scriptures. The rest of the writings. We may not realize it, but one of the things that was going on in the, in the church in the days of Luther and Calvin and those other reformers is this, is the church have, had actively kept the Bible, had kept the word of God from the hands of the people for much of its history. For a thousand years or more. There were a lot of things that contributed to that. Number one, there were no printing presses until right at the time of the Reformation. We, we, we don't think about this, but this is one of the things that really caused this whole movement to spread across Europe so rapidly. And that is, it came right at the time the printing press had been printed. So now, all the, things, all the writings of Luther and the writings of Calvin, it could be made available to the people. But you know what was even greater than that? Now the Bible itself was placed into the hands of the common folk. They could read it for themselves if they knew how to read, or they would learn how to read. And they were no longer dependent upon church clergy to read it and study it and then tell them what it says. The Bible, for the first time, written very often in their own spoken language. Not in Latin, not in Greek or Hebrew, but now in German. Bibles were mass-produced for the first time. I read something recently that surprised me. I really do believe this. I believe there's a, a large percentage of church people who in their whole lifetime never take the time to one time read through the, through the Bible. Uh, I think that's a very sad thing. Uh, but I read uh, something in, was published in Christianity Today recently that painted a little bit different picture than what I had 
imagined up to this point. Uh, and in that, in that survey, it said that 20% of adult Americans at some time in their lifetime will read all the way through the Bible, 20% of just Americans in general. It also mentioned that 61% of evangelical Christians will read all the way through their Bible at some time in their lifetime. That number encourages me. I would have imagined it would have been a lot less than that. If you happen to be one of those people, I want to congratulate you. If you're not, I want to challenge you to give it a go. Also, interestingly, 33% of politically uh, conservative people have done that or will do that in their lifetime as compared to 10% of political liberals. Does that surprise you? Had a conversation with a young man a couple of years ago, it really wasn't much of a conversation. He didn't really want to hear anybody else's what anybody else had to say. He just had a lot to say. Uh, and one of the things he said to me is, what is it that makes your book special? What do you think it is about your book compared to all of these other ancient holy books that teach this, that, and the other? What is it about your book that sets it apart and makes it special? Well, I never really got the opportunity to respond to him, but if I had, I would have said this. Because this book is God-breathed. This book is inspired by God. It's set apart from every other writing there ever has been. The Bible itself attests to this. As we just read in 2 Timothy 3.16. And I would say that he goes in beyond that. personal experience. We read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 this morning. Let me read it for you again. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as this division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart's We've already read Deuteronomy chapter 8 this morning. Let me read this again for you. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Luther wrote this. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Calvin wrote this. This power is peculiar to Scripture. There is none capable of affecting us comparably. It is easy to see the Scriptures 
breathe something divine. If you've read the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. The Westminster Confession, uh, the, the larger catechism, question number four, talks about its power to convince and convert sinners. So what I'm saying to you this morning is this, is if you've read the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. You don't need for John Calvin to tell you that. You don't need for Martin Luther to tell you that. You know it. As you read the Bible, it speaks to you in a way that nothing else does. When you read it and you walk away from it, you have no doubt in your mind that God has spoken to you. And you know what I'm talking about. Right? In other words, no one needs to convince you that the Bible is the inspired word of God because it's exactly what you know and what you've experienced. It has transformational power. And because it is God-breathed, because it is God-inspired, it is useful or beneficial or profitable for a number of things. You don't need the Bible to come to an understanding that there is a God. Nature speaks to us. I can't imagine anyone ever taking the time to go outside and to look at the heavens above us and, and to listen to the birds singing around us and the, and the trees swaying in the wind around us, not to have thoughts of God. His fingerprint is all over everything in his creation, and in more particularly, his fingerprint is upon you. We live in a day when people believe that science has is, is disproven this and they've disproven that and, they've, and it's proven this and it's proven that. But I want to say to you this morning, there's a lot that people are assuming that has, been, uh, has not been proven, that people are saying has been proving, and vice versa. I was reading an article the other day, and it is echoing so many things that I've seen. People have this idea today that the science is more is unfolding, that, that, that it's proving more and more that there is no God. As a matter of fact, science has shown today that there is no need for God. And this is what people are saying. Well, let me just tell you, from a scientific point of view, and I do have a little bit of one, what I see is this, as more and more unfolds about the universe, as more and more unfolds about our understanding of life and all that's involved in it, 
what we're seeing is more and more complication, more and more apparent design, more and more of this, more and more of that. What I'm telling you guys is this is science is screaming there is a God. And people don't even, some people don't even want to hear it. They don't even take the time to consider the possibility of the truth. Because they do not want God to be true. And so they've blinded themselves. And the hardness of their own heart just gets harder and harder and harder and harder. So you don't need the Bible to come to an understanding that there is a God. The only thing you need is some common sense and an open mind. However, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you do need the Bible. To see God speaks to us a lot in nature, but that's not the only way he speaks to us. He speaks to us more particularly through what we call special revelation, which in our day is the Bible. Hebrews were told that, you know, he spoke to the fathers in many different ways, through the prophets and other ways. But in these days, he speaks to us in his son. How does he do that? He does that through the scriptures. How do you know anything about Jesus? How did anyone, how would anyone today know anything about Jesus? Well, perhaps somebody would tell them, but we understand this, that those people, eventually someone had to read it out of the Bible. The Bible is essential for us coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the salvation is offered through him. Because all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof. In my understanding, I think probably a better word there would be for conviction, for correction, for training in righteousness. As far as teaching goes, we understand that one of the principal purposes and functions of the church is to teach the Word of God. I hope you find that here. I think I hope that you find that this is one of the things that we emphasize above everything else, and that is the importance of learning the Bible. And not only learning the Bible, but, but applying the Bible. Just remember, Paul is a teacher of the word, and he is writing to a teacher of the word, Timothy. 
I wouldn't be surprised if this is something that, that, that Paul has shared with Timothy over and over again. This is just, he's just reaffirming it here another time. How, how important it is for him that everything that he teaches is undergirded by Scripture. Just remember the circumstances that Timothy's in. He's, 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 in, he's in Ephesus, and, and, and Paul's already warned him that there are people that are teaching all kinds of strange doctrines, and he has to stand against that. He has to stand with the Word of God. He has to teach the truth, and he has to be willing to correct people. I've had people tell me that in the PCA that we just have far too much emphasis on education. That what we need to do basically is just take Bibles and hand them into the, give them into the hands of people and just send them out to teach. When you think about that, that, what we all need to do is just pick up our Bible, read a little bit, and then go teach it to everybody else without any input from anything else, no education, no this, no, no that. Well, we know that's not what Jesus believed, right? That's not what he did with the disciples. He spent three years teaching them before he sent them out. We know that Paul, even though immediately after his conversion, he started spreading the word about Jesus, but we understand this, that he went off for a lengthy period of time, kind of on his own, to Arabia and some other places. And what was he doing there? I would imagine Paul was learning. Jesus was preparing him for those years of ministry that we would have recorded here in Scripture. For conviction. Let me ask you something. When was the first time you ever came to the point where you were really convicted of the greatness of your own sin? Where were you? What were you doing? Well, some of you may have been listening to sermons somewhere. But for some people, it was through your own reading of the Word of God. And I want you to remember this morning how crushing the weight of that knowledge was when it finally hit you like a ton of bricks. That you really were not that great and grand and wonderful person that you had always thought you were. When you got some measure and only a measure of the gravity, the true gravity of your own sin. Did you feel the crushing weight of it? Have you ever felt the crushing weight of it? You can thank the Bible for that. Because through it comes conviction. But that's not the rest of the story now, is it? Your sin is far too a burden for you to ever think about carrying. 
but. Sometimes but's bad. This time but is a really good but. But Jesus has taken that burden from you. For correction, how much misguided teaching do you think takes place in the context of the church today? I'm talking about very well-intentioned people. I'm talking about very, very often people who think that they really have an understanding of things. But back to education. Like I said, in the PC, we require a lot of our pastors compared to what you'd find with many denominations. Most have at least a three-year master's degree of divinity on top of a four-year degree, college degree. And they get a master's degree for it. And in any other field, if you had the education years the, the, the typical seminary graduate in the PCA has, you would have a doctorate. You would not have a master's degree. Pretty stiff requirements. But it's a good thing. Because we do everything we can to make sure that the people who go out and are teaching and doing things like Timothy are doing actually have a large or high level of understanding. Not that they know everything. Not that they're smarter than everybody else. But they have a lot to work with. So one of the reasons I'm so excited about the ministry that Don Mountain is involved in, because you know what Don is doing? He's talking, he's taking seminary level education to people who would otherwise never ever have it. Classes in Bible, classes in theology, classes in languages, classes in this and classes in that. Things that will enable them and help them to do their job well and to do it even far better than they would otherwise. Need to be praying for Edge. He's just getting started. And the more you learn, the more you learn there is to learn. It's going to be like that for the rest of your life. Don't ever get to the point that you think you know everything. Because you're in big trouble if you ever get there. Because there's always more to know. There's always more to learn. There's more, always more to understand. Being a, being a pastor, being a teacher is, is, is a, uh, a dedication to lifelong study. It's not studying for some years and then, then, and then having it all in the bag and then just moving on from there. It's constant study. I spend more time every week studying than I do just about anything else. For correction, 
To be able to correct, you have to know the truth. I was uh, involved in prison ministry just a little bit when I first uh, started. When I first became a Christian, I got involved in prison fellowship for a short period of time. And, and, and we were going through some training. And at one point, we had to go to a women's prison up in Bronson. It was me and about four or five other people and, and all of that. And there was a pastor there from Ocala. It was a Baptist pastor that, that led a Bible study uh, in, a general, in, in, in you know, the whole audience at one point. And then after that lesson that he would do, then it would, they would broke the, the big group down into little groups. And then they would have leaders, volunteers who would come to lead the conversations, to go through questions and things about uh, the particular Bible passage that the, the, the preacher had expounded on. And I was in this group, and there was a lady li- li- leading this group, and they'd been meeting for a few weeks, so I kind of jumped into the middle of it uh, and all of that. But I was pretty new in my Christian walk. I didn't know a whole lot myself. I'd read the Bible maybe one time I, uh, on my own and you know, had gotten involved in some Bible study and some things like that, but I certainly was, didn't, there was a lot of stuff I did not know. But one of the women in the group asked her a question. The question was this, and that is, is it sin if you just think about doing something like committing adultery, or does it only become sin when you actually commit it? And what do you think the teacher said? It only becomes sin when you actually commit it. And what I wanted to do was jump up and down, and I didn't want to embarrass her. But what I wanted to scream was, what about the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says that lust is adultery, and he says that anger is murder. I think, guys, one of the biggest things going on today is this. Is we have people teaching Bible who really don't have much of a clue about the Bible and its wholeness. And it's not something that comes easy. It takes work. It takes effort. That when we step into positions of teaching other people, there has to be a good bit of knowledge. Otherwise, we can be teaching falsely whether we do And this woman, I'm, she was not, she was doing this intentionally. She was just basically misinformed. But what about those women who were in that little group that left that group thinking, my Bible teacher told me this, this is what the truth is, and therefore that's how I'm going to live. As teachers, and some of us in this room, we're all teachers in a degree, you know that. Every one of us, we are all called to teach, to speak to other people about God. To share the gospel with other people. 
But when we're called to be teachers and we step into a teaching position, we need to make sure that we understand what we are teaching and that it is the Bible. Not just what makes human sense to us. Or what we think it ought to be. Or what we think... Or what we want people to think or believe. It needs to be scripture. whole purpose is training in righteousness. And what is righteousness? Righteousness is knowing what is right and doing it. Knowing what is right and actually doing what is right. Now, how often do you do that? I mean, is that your practice? Every time you become enlightened to what is right in the mind of God, that's exactly what you do from that day forward, never deviating from it. No. One of the most remarkable things about the Reformation is it brought to light something that had become hidden for generations that was very clearly a teaching of the Bible and the t- one of the principal teachings of Jesus, and that is this, is righteousness is the key to everything. And if you want to know what the key to heaven is, it's righteousness. If you have righteousness, the righteousness key, you put it in the door, the gate, the door swings open, and you go in. But the problem is this, is we don't have a self-righteousness. None of us do. That's not to mean we don't do some decent things sometimes, but it means this, that even in the good things that we do, there's always a smidgen of sin in it. Always. We never do anything that's perfectly righteous. So how did we get to heaven? Well, this is a reformation. One of the things that Luther talks about in his uh, commentary to Galatians, the preface in it, and if you've never read the preface to that commentary and you want to know about the Reformation and what the roots of it were and why, it might be a good idea for you to do that. But in it, what he does is he makes the distinction between what he calls active righteousness and passive righteousness, and he basically says of, of active righteousness we have none. Therefore, we are dependent upon a passive righteousness if we are to be righteous. And that's the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You and I don't have to be righteous because Jesus is. And because he's done it for us. And through him, we have the key to heaven.
They'll never forget that. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The man of God. So how equipped are you? See, that's my job. To help you be equipped. That's what I try to do every week. As imperfect as it is, I don't know how in the world you guys can sit here and listen to me week after week after week, especially those of you that have been here for years and years and years and years. I don't know how you do it. I really, really don't. Springs is not a perfect church. It's not. Because it's filled with imperfect people, and that's also true that there is an imperfect pastor. More imperfect than you know. But my job is to equip. That's why I went to school for as long as I did, so that I would be equipped. So why? So I can equip you. So how am I doing? (laughs) Let me say this. I just, you know, Springs is not a perfect church. You know, we have our controversies at times, and sometimes people get their feelings hurt and, you know, this, that, and the other. And, uh, but, but, but Springs is really, in a lot of ways, an amazing church. And I, I know some of you would say this. Some of you say probably, no, it's just an ordinary church. There's nothing special about what's going on here, and, you know, or anything like that. But I don't think most of you would fit in that category. You understand that there's a specialness here. Right, that we really do love each other, that we really do care about each other, that we really do want the best for each other. It doesn't always come easy because it, it, the easy thing would be for us to do this, to sit here today and say, you know what, I really like Springs Church where it is, like it is with the people that it is right now. It's given me all kinds of benefits in my life that I've never had before. I'm closer to people than I've ever been in some ways before. In other words, it's my church. But there's something we have got to remember, and that is this. It is not my church. It is Jesus Christ's church. It is his job to build it. It is his job to strengthen it.
And the picture, the face of Springs is changing a little bit right now. As I'm looking out on you guys this morning, you look very different than you did a year ago. There's lots of new faces. And I am very appreciative and thankful for every one of those faces. So if you happen to be one of those people that just likes it the way it is and you don't want it to change, tough luck. It is changing. And it will change. And it needs to change. For a lot of reasons. And one of those reasons is so other people will have what you have. They may not look like you. They may not talk like you. They may not have your same personality. But they are children of God. What that has to do with anything, I'm not too sure. But remember, guys, this is his stuff. This is his work. And hallelujah for it. Hallelujah. Anyway, we're going to move on next week and take a look at some of these other solas.